Howdy folks, this is Devin Olson with the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. Welcome back to yet another installment of our Wyoming Agriculture Podcast Roadside Observation Series. Uh, This is just a little series that I recorded while on a recent road trip down to Florida from Cheyenne, Wyoming. So a little bit of a long drive and uh, had plenty of chance to record. Of course, uh, not all of that was utilized, but we did get three episodes recorded. This is two of three. Uh, this episode is mostly about my little walk around and observations of the Cheyenne property um, that my grandparents owned when I was 16, 17, somewhere around there. So a little over a decade ago when I got into permaculture and I started becoming the dirty hippie farmer that you know today. Um, this was the property that I kind of tinked around with. And I, when I say tinked around, I made some pretty massive hue culture beds. Um, and I, I made some, you know, mistakes as well. So I don't know if I talk about all of those in here, but it is a little bit about, you know, the observations I made um, and kind of what I drew from those observations. You know, things take a little longer here uh, than they would in other places and, and, uh, you know, a few other little things here and there, but anyway, um, this is another roadside one, so there's probably a chance that there's some cussing in there. I think I tried to dial that back a little bit after the first one. I uh, can't quite remember, honestly. It's been a couple weeks since I recorded, but uh, here we go, the second installment. All right, howdy, folks. Devin Olson here with another episode of the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. Coming to you today from the high-speed highway of I-80, going across Nebraska at the moment. So this is going to be our second installment in my little uh, road trip observation series. Uh, I wanted to start this podcast off today and talk to you a little bit about that property down in Cheyenne that I started back when I was 16. Some of you might know about that. Most of you probably don't. It's not something I've really talked about a lot on the podcast, uh, but I do have a little poster thread about it over on Permies, and I think I'll I'll probably share this episode over there for a little bit of an update. But just as a little bit of background, uh, I started into some of this permaculture stuff and became a crazy dirty hippie way back when I was about 16. That was about 11 years ago now. And about that time, uh, give or take a year, I developed a couple of really large scale like Sepp Holzer style hue culture beds down in Cheyenne in my grandma's backyard. She was kind enough to let me fool around back there. Uh, And I started the first one with a shovel in my back. And I dug, uh, you know, about two to three feet down in the dirt and rolled these massive cottonwood logs and elm logs over there and filled it in, stacked them all the way up. I went off, I literally went off the picture uh, on rich soil uh, that article by Paul Wheaton on Hugo Culture. And not long after I'd, you know, gotten mostly done with finished building it, I'd, I saw or read or heard, I think it was in a podcast, he was talking about how you don't really take that quite literally when you build a Hugo Culture bed. Um, but I did. So that's what I did in my first section. It was about maybe six to eight foot long. Uh, I built it up to about seven foot high. And it was literally like pyramidly stacked rounds of logs. Um, some of them quite massive and then getting a little smaller as they went to the top. But I took all that soil I dug out and I threw it back on there and found out I needed a heck of a lot more. So I started digging uh, somewhere else on the property. It was a little one acre backyard, one acre front yard, two acre property. And this was all in the backyard. So I went up the hill and grabbed some dirt and moved that over and finally after you know probably what felt like a thousand wheelbarrows I finally got enough dirt on the thing to call it a culture bed and I started growing and it didn't really work out too well Um, a lot of different things and we'll talk about some of those observations here but the next year later on that year um, I was working on sourcing some more wood and I seen this guy that was cutting down a tree a few blocks away from the house he's cutting up a whole bunch of cottonwood or elm I can't quite recall which you know they look kind of similar to the untrained eye and at the time I definitely didn't know the difference so I called them all cottonwood so anyway 
I stopped by and I said, hey, what are you doing with all that wood there? And he said, well, not really much. And I was like, well, if you need a free place to dump it, you know, I'll, I'll give you a place. And it happened to be closer than the dump, so it saved him some time and probably a little bit of money on his job. And he was more than happy to oblige. So he dropped it off for me. And of course, naturally, he's like, well, what, what the hell are you doing here, Devin? And I tell him a little bit, and I ended up hiring him to come over with a skid steer and uh, digging out the holes for me, dumping some logs in and putting some dirt back on. And it was quite a project. I was reminded by my uncle uh, a couple weeks ago that for part of that project, at least, I actually ended up borrowing or renting a skid steer, and apparently I broke it. I, I don't really remember that, but he does. <laughs> Um, so anyway, I, I think it was because he said I was digging too much with it. And of course, skidsters aren't really made for digging down. They're made for scraping off and, and moving loose material for the most part. So I think I, I overdid it on, on some of that um, from the story. But anyway, so I ended up making probably a combined total of about... Oh, I'd say maybe 200 foot a heliculture bed. Again, massive sept holzer style beds. These were probably six to eight foot tall, maybe 15 across at the bottom. And uh, they were long and kind of had, I, I was really going for the edge concept, you know, really going with it. And so I, I didn't make straight lines, of course. They squirreled and squirmed and moved all over the place. And, um, and I kind of designed them to shed the cold air coming off the top of the hill and collect warmer air coming up from the bottom of the hill. But it wasn't really much of a hill, you know. A lot of this design, looking back over time, I think I'd do it differently now. But anyway, I got all that built. Um, another one of the mistakes I made, so when I made those, the additional heliculture uh, beds that I used the skidsters for, by then I would kind of figured out that you don't really stack them up uh, you know exactly like you would a wood pile as I saw in the you know in the rich soil article and so I had just kind of jumbled them all together I'd learned that you know and then I put all the dirt on but what I another thing I'd messed up when you build a Hugo culture bed especially of that size and scope uh, you dig out you want to separate your topsoil from your subsoil and then you want to put your subsoil on the wood after you've placed your wood and then finish off with topsoil. Well, I didn't really do that. I just kind of put all the dirt in one spot, and then after I put my wood there, I put it all back and it got mixed. And then as I needed more, I dug out a hole and uh, ended up finishing off a lot of the beds with subsoil. And you can still see some of that subsoil today. It's been probably about 9 to 12 years, somewhere in there, since they were built and uh, that subsoil is still exposed, still dry, not really growing much. Uh, what has happened over the years is that the very top ridge of those beds, you know, people walk on them and they just become a little bit of a playground for the kids because truthfully, I didn't really do much with them. I worked them for maybe a year or two and I left and uh, I use the term worked them quite loosely, quite loosely. So I got them built and then, of course, you know, being a big Seth Holzer fan, I was, like, well, I'll just buy tons and tons of seed and broadcast it everywhere. My idea of tons of seed at the time was maybe about three to $400 worth of seed, and that was a lot. Uh, but it really wasn't the best strategy. You know, if I was gonna spend, if that was my budget again now, I would actually probably cut down my diversity to maybe a few crops that I would expect would do quite well, just to make sure that there was good ground cover. But instead, I bought a whole bunch of different things that I thought were fantastical and I wanted to grow them. And I had small quantities of this, small quantities of that. And I would make seed blends that were made up with pretty much everything I wanted to plant. I'd throw them all over these culture beds. I had really low successful uh, success rate on germination because they're on these hot, dry, wind-exposed beds in Cheyenne, Wyoming. It ain't Austria, folks. It don't grow the same. So... There was a lot there that just didn't work out the way it should. But I remember growing a little bit of barley, a little bit of wheat, and I, I do mean a little bit. I was I was ordering seed from Cusa Seed Society, trying to grow some uh, older varieties of seed, some 
some ancient, not really ancient grains, but you know, some heirloom varieties from back in the day before it was bred to be uh, planted, tended, and harvested by combine and in large machinery. You know, from back back when it was uh, man labor going into growing a lot of wheat and barley. Uh, so anyway, that was you know the sort of seed I was planting there. I do remember. I had a spinach plant that grew on the south side of one of those beds and the leaves got about as big around as a dinner plate. It was it was amazing. And that is one thing that I've noticed with those massive hugoculture beds. The biomass on these hugoculture beds that I've seen is significantly larger than the same plant even 15 to 20 feet away. It's something about either the wood, uh, the oxygen, or the fungi. There's something about the way a hugoculture is put together that results in absolutely massive plants and i kind of tend to think that it's a combination of all of those things uh, sometimes you'll see larger plants and aeroponic systems that grow pretty quick and yet i think you get a little bit of an aeroponic environment in the root zone of these plants because you've got these little gaps between uh some of the wood and there's like some air space between that and the soil and it creates like a very humid and almost misty environment in there i think of course i didn't uh you, you don't ever really see that because it's underground so you don't you know it's not visceral like you you would see it in an aeroponic system but i think that's probably part of that uh the other thing is it's really fungally rich obviously so fungi is going to help to uh, make a lot more of your nutrients more bioavailable, even your moisture a little more bioavailable. Uh, it's gonna do a lot to help those plants grow. So I think between that and, and maybe just the, the physical structure of the bed, uh, there are some pretty impressive plants that of the plants that did grow there. But anyway, for the most part, when I was down there, they were terribly unproductive beds. Most of the plants would not survive even if I transplanted them onto those beds. I couldn't keep the moisture onto them, uh, but there was one section of that hand-built bed. It's down at the bottom of the hill on the north side of that bed, where it didn't get as much sun exposure, not as much wind, and uh, there was a lot more moisture there. And that particular section has always done a lot better than the rest of it. Well, I went over there. Uh, fortunately, the guy that bought the house from my grandparents. They have at least a decent enough relationship that he uh, grabbed a few more totes for him that they had, I guess, left at the house or something. And I loaded those up. While I was there, you know, I had him show me around a little bit. And I went and dug my hands in some of those beds. Um, and the soil there is finally getting there. I mean, it, it's actually soil now. It's dark, uh, dark brown, you know, almost black. Of course, this time of year there is some more moisture in the soil than there typically would be, but it actually looks like soil on those beds. Um, there is some of the logs that have become exposed over the years, some of those upper logs that just didn't get buried with enough. Um, as the soil has kind of settled, as the voles came in and opened up more space, you know, it caused a lot more settling, plus the wind blowing some of the soil off. Uh, so there's been some logs that have come exposed over the years. And those logs are starting to break down. They're getting punky. So I know that the stuff that's still covered by the soil and is in a you know a little safer environment is probably looking pretty good. Uh, the top is still pretty compacted. From people walking on it. You know, a lot of the the kids over the years have walked on it. Uh, from what I understand, some kids are you know riding their bikes on it and stuff from time to time. I did tell the guy to take it a little easy on that. Um, just because of the potential for voids to form but you know it, it's a risk and in, in reward scenario so as long as you know that's a risk you know you just take it easy otherwise it's probably a fun place for a kid with bmx anyway um so yeah over the years they've kind of just gotten overtaken with prairie grass uh, and curly dock has grown quite a bit around them and I'm sure there's a lot of bindweed. I remember from back in the day growing there, there's a lot of bindweed on that property. So that's probably growing there. But otherwise, it looks like the soil is, you know, starting to do pretty well. And over the years, I think it'd be even, uh, by now, you know, it'd probably be a really nice garden bed. I suggested to the guy to maybe uh, put some terraces on there and fill them with compost, or that's what I would do with them at this point. 
you know they would definitely need a little bit of work to get all those all that prairie grass off of there and get them into production but the soil is getting there on those um the hole i dug out that was going to be a pond i mean i i found out pretty quickly it was just piss poor placement for a pond and i don't think that a pond would ever make it there unless you were pumping water into it from a well so it, we've kind of filled it in with branches and logs and such over over the years and any kind of wood debris and if i had the place now you know that's kind of what i'd do i'd fill it up to the top and then i would cover it with some topsoil and i think uh, that would actually make a good squash bed for a couple of years and then transition it into a, a more of a production space it is on a little bit of an exposed uh, hill or ridge top so it wouldn't really be something you'd want to plant anything too tender in but i think with all the woody debris there you know if you filled it in it would have some uh, pretty good moisture after a, a period of time and if nothing else then it would create a moisture reservoir uh, for the tree line that is beneath it you know it's directly above the tree line so i think that would feed that over the years <coughs> going forward if you were to get that filled in uh, apple trees i'd planted some apple trees there three of them it was i think one macintosh and two golden delicious which were my favorite at the time and the golden delicious just didn't make it really they kept dying back uh, and then when they'd come up you know a kid would hit them with a stick or something and kill them these things happen you know when you have a place that's neglected uh, as far as the plants go over a period of time but it does look like uh, one of those at least the rootstock came back if not possibly the golden delicious itself um, so that over time if it survives will at least provide some flowers for cross-pollination of the one that's doing good so the only one that really survived and it's actually grown and I think it's within a year or two of producing fruit as long as there is uh, some other apple trees nearby to cross-pollinate is the one that's right next to the one of the huperculture beds it's uh it actually happens to work out right there so the the uphill side of the the, the lower bed as well as the uphill side of most of the upper bed and downhill side of part of the upper bed all kind of drain into that and it's it's like a little water catchment there there's a little bit of a depression and then right next to the apple tree there's a rise so the water will settle there and kind of soak in before it uh gently comes over and, and flows down next to that smaller and lower huberculture bed uh that i was talking about earlier that i, I built by hand where the north side grows really well so that particular apple tree has gone from being a little sapling you know to it's probably about three to four inches in diameter at the base um, and it's gotten to about five to maybe six feet high which is pretty impressive when you think that the other two one hasn't even survived you can't even tell it was ever there and the other one is at best about 10 inches high still and still looks like a sapling and it's been again about 10 years since i planted that so that gives you an idea folks if you're not from wyoming or if you're starting some tree planting in wyoming you got to be intentional about how you plant and care for your trees when they start uh, if you're expecting any sort of rapid growth otherwise you're looking at about a decade uh, before those trees even get to something that you could consider a tree before they're anything more than a stick in the ground it takes a long time around here for a tree to get established unless you have a way of babying it so just keep that in mind you know there there's a lot of uh you have to be intentional with the way that you you put trees in now you know i I put those in in hindsight way too close to each other and I was trying to get a little triangular grove going and it, it just didn't work out um, and initially the plan was that between those three trees I was gonna have kind of a raised bed hue of culture that was built around a stump and that stump uh, got put in place while the the skidsters were there but the dirt was never piled around it and it never became a a hue culture bed I never did anything with it well now years later it's still sitting there um but it looks like there's some choke cherry trees that have volunteered there right next to that stump and that of course would be from some birds landing 
choke cherries are one of the trees that are native to Wyoming and actually will grow around here. Um, so I think that's how that happened is we had a bird that landed there, shot some out, and there's a tree. So that's actually to see one that volunteered, I think is a good sign that that particular area is relatively sheltered and that we've managed to recharge the soil uh, with some moisture there to some degree. Um, from my understanding, you know, uh, the guy plans to do a little bit of raised bed gardening and I recommended putting in some hugocultures, um, but not in the fashion that I did. So those sap holzer style beds, I, I actually don't think that they're a good fit for Wyoming. Um, and I could be wrong about that, but I just haven't really seen anything that works particularly well with those. They're very steep uh, and exposed to the wind and sun, and so they dry out pretty quick, you know. Uh, so hugoculture beds that I've built since then, and what I'll probably continue to do for all my hugoculture beds in the future, what I actually do now is I dig a trench and I start filling it with wood, and then about existing soil level or a couple feet above that, I'll stop with that and I'll build a typical raised bed frame and then I'll fill that in with soil. And so what that does for you predominantly on the practical side, it saves you a little bit of cost on soil because a lot of the times when you're building a, a raised bed, you're buying in soil or even if you're not, you know, if you're making your own compost, uh, that compost and soil does have a time cost. It's not free even if it doesn't cost you cash. So, filling that in with that wood will help save you a little bit of money there. And then, of course, all the benefits of a hugoculture bed come with that. You know, you've got the additional fungi matter, you've got that, uh, that aeration in there, you've got the, the water retention, the nutrient retention, the slow release of nutrients and water into the bed that gives you 20 to 30 years of production or more. I kind of expect those big beds down in Cheyenne will be productive for 50 years with how massive they are. So, anyway, I did recommend doing that to him just because I think that would help a little bit, you know, with saving him a little bit of cost and, and keeping things productive. Um, I've noticed that when I was walking around in there, some of those spots where years ago I tried mulching uh, are actually starting to look like decent soil now, now that that mulch just kind of broke down. It's, it took, so, I mean, that tells me it takes about 10 years for the mulch to break down and actually become soil around here and and to really feed the soil. So it's it's a very long game when you start playing around with hugoculture and mulch to try to create soil. It is a good investment. I think it makes a good soil, but it's it's not gonna be something that you see like at Paul Gauchy's place up in Oregon where he's putting a bunch of wood chips down and getting productive soil within a season or two takes a long time. I had a lot of struggles with that. When I was mulching down there and growing, I would have in the summer a lot of rain events that you get down in that area and in Wyoming in general are just like little mistings. They don't really do a whole lot. And so what would happen is the moisture from that rain would kind of barely miss the top of the mulch, but it wasn't enough to get underneath the mulch. So the rain actually would not get into the soil where the mulch was. It would only moisten exposed soil and soil with a very small amount of grass on it. So uh, the bare soil was actually accepting moisture better in the middle of the summer like that. Now, I'm not saying it was holding on to the moisture better. I'm not saying that, you know, it, it wasn't losing more to evaporation, but it was accepting the soil from those rain events better. So if you're gonna be mulching, I think that the thing to do, and this is just kind of my my musings on this, but I kind of think that the thing to do is to design your mulched beds to accept large amounts of water when it is available, like in the spring melt runoff, and then hold on to that water for as long as possible. You're not gonna try to, you know, garden with the summer's rain because summer's rain 90% of the time is not gonna do you any good. If it if you do get enough to you know soak in then consider that a bonus a little bit of icing on the cake but don't rely on it uh that's just kind of my musings on that you know uh some other things about that site that you know were really awesome or at least you know it was fun for me to look at everything and 
it's a site that I spent a lot of wasted time on in, the, in my youth, but um, a lot of the stuff is now starting to get to where it would really pay off in spades if I was down there and working the soil. Uh, where the greenhouse was, the greenhouse has of course fallen apart and, and been taken down since then. Uh, there's like a badger or something or a fox that's decided to move in there, maybe a groundhog. And he's got a hole there. And that, and he showed, uh, he pulled up some of the subsoil. The subsoil there, as you can see from the agriculture bed and from that hole and the hole that I dug for the pond that will never be a pond, uh, it seems like it's got a, a decent amount of like granite in it. Uh, pretty, not super rich in iron, but there's some iron in there. You can tell there's just a little bit of a red, uh, almost pink tint to the soil. So there's like a white and pink chalkiness, if you will, um, which, you know, maybe it's a little bit more of a uh, lime soil or something. I tend to find that most of the soils around here are a little more acidic. Um, if they're in sand and a little more alkaline when they're with clay, but you know, there's always differences to the patterns. So I don't know, maybe it's a little more of an alkaline sand environment there. I never recall getting the soil tested or doing any pH tests. I just kind of did things by hand. Um, but that was kind of that, that particular house, you know, if you were going to put a pond on that site, you'd want to put it where they built the house way back in the day. I don't know why the house was ever built there. But, um, yeah, that's kind of that. A lot of the trees are dying now. You know, there was cottonwoods on that property. And a lot of them have died back over the years. And there's still more that are kind of in the process of dying. So, I told them, I, you know, if, it, if they're my trees, I might try larding them or coppicing them to see if that would bring them back with some uh, younger growth I don't know if that would really happen I don't know you know maybe they're just young live young lived trees that need to be replaced um, but that's kind of what's going on there uh, as far as you know what he was talking about doing with it in the future it sounds like they might be putting in some raised beds uh, they might be planting some trees down along the fence line um, of course he inherited that pipeline that goes through there and I told him that back when I was learning about that you can't really put any trees or anything within 25 feet either side of it because they need to be able to fly the, the pipeline so he was kind of bummed about that but I think I think he can get some trees along the fence line okay I think that'll be all right I think that's far enough away but anyway it was yeah it was really neat to check that out you know I <laughs> I kicked myself for not bringing my phone. I was going to take some pictures for the Permies Forum, uh, but I did not. So, I don't know. The guy seems like a pretty good... <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe I'll edit that out. I don't know. You'll probably hear me cough. Anyway, the guy seems like a pretty cool guy. So, maybe sometime in the future, you know, I'll stop by and visit. And see how everything's doing. And you might see some pictures in the future. Maybe. I'm not promising anything, though. Anyhow, um, so that's my little recap on the Cheyenne property uh, that I started years and years ago. Um, it, you know, when I post this on uh, Permies, a little shout out to Miles Flanberg if he sees this or hears this. Uh, he he saw that site and kind of where I was going with it way back when I was a kid, uh, and he he was kind enough. He he delivered some uh, food grade diatomaceous earth on his way through town. And I actually still have a little bit of that to this day. I use it uh, for keeping my, my seeds dry when I'm storing seeds as a desiccant. So um, yeah, just a little tip of the hat to Miles there. Thanks, Miles. Hope you hear this. Anyway, uh, so let's move on a little bit and get on to today's observations and ramblings, I guess. Of course, all of these episodes are nothing but a series of rambling, but I am now driving through Nebraska. I'm uh, about halfway through at this point, past the panhandle, past a couple of feedlots. Um, a couple of things that I've noticed in this trip so far, and then we'll kind of get into what I want to talk about today, which is uh, plant ID while you're driving. But 
the uh, the state line it was interesting it was almost like the snowstorm this morning decided to just quit right at the state line right at Pine Bluff there and I don't know if that's just because of the terrain I mean more than likely maybe it petered out I don't know um, but there there was a lot of snow um, on the way over between Cheyenne and the state line and the slow lane was the only lane that was really safe to be in that time of morning with the truck I'm driving uh, and then as soon as I got to Nebraska it was like it never snow here sun came up you know about what would have been seven o'clock Wyoming time it was probably about eight o'clock by the time you know I uh, you account for the time change and all that stuff but uh, it, it was actually kind of convenient that there was a snowstorm last night and it's overcast here because uh, the sun was only out and directly in my face for about 30 minutes and it happened to be just at the height that I could use the sun visor to block it so I didn't have to worry about driving into the sun which is often a problem first thing in the morning that was nice um, another thing I've noticed coming in you know it a lot of Nebraska so far seems to be kind of reminiscent of Wyoming lowlands where you're down in the valleys you know kind of like Lander Riverton area where you got uh, flatter fields that are a little more sprawling probably deeper soils and you've got more clusters of trees um, whether that's small isolated groves or larger tree lines that are running along little drainage creeks um, and things of the sort and it still seems to be pretty typical uh, species that are similar to Wyoming so far you know we're about at the same latitude moving over a little bit east but you know a lot of pines junipers cottonwoods elms poplars uh, things of that nature seen some willows stuff like that um, but that kind of gets into uh, what I decided I wanted to ramble on about a little bit today so when you're driving along the road folks even when you're in Wyoming or you know as we were talking about yesterday a short little road trip down to downtown you know going to church or going to do some errands um, or driving across the straight to or across the state to visit grandma for Thanksgiving or going on a road trip like I am you can uh, learn some things while you're driving so what I want to talk about today is a little bit of roadside plants ID and I'm not gonna get into telling you this is how you know what this plant is and and this is how you know it's not that I'm not gonna advise you what to eat and what not to eat um, you know it when it comes to plant ID you got to be certain anytime you're identifying something you're not fully knowledgeable you need to be certain of that identification whether it's plants mushrooms animals um, and that is important in knowing whether or not that animal is edible safe uh, to deal with uh, or plants fungi whatever 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 that object is you know and that in terms of animals if you're out hunting you know it it can be quite important to be able to distinguish between species particularly with birds because you don't want to be shooting something that's gonna get your ass thrown in jail all right I'm not really a huge fan of the state and uh, I'm not necessarily taking their side on this but you do what's smart you do what keeps you free and keeps you alive as long as possible right so you're not gonna go out and shoot something that's highly endangered like specifically targeting a bald eagle or something that might get you and a hell of a lot of trouble so having some plant or animal ID in that case is really important as far as fungi and plants in both of those instances if you're not particularly certain that it is the species that you know it is then you have some risk of potentially eating something that's poisonous or deadly now with both of those plants and fungi the vast majority of them are edible not always delicious I didn't say good but edible and some of them will just cause a mild stomach upset but there are going to be some that will kill you dead right in your tracks so with any kind of ID guys just always be absolutely certain of what you're dealing with before you feed it to yourself or your family especially if you're not foraging on a regular basis if you're waiting until you get into a hard spot and you really need the food that's when you're more likely to gorge on things you might be uh, a little less certain of what you're eating and a little more adventurous than maybe you should be and your bodies might be a little bit weaker by that point maybe you haven't had the nutrition that you need 
over the past couple weeks and then you finally decide to break down and start eating those weeds in the yard well your body's gonna be a little more susceptible to having uh, issues if you're allergic or if you pick the wrong plants or mushroom uh, things of that nature so just just be careful out there is all I'm really trying to get at um, and don't take anything I say as, as gospel you know you got to do your own research and learn for yourself and I think uh, if you're listening to a podcast you're probably that sort of person that likes to learn so just keep at it you'll figure it out all right so some of the the plant ids and how that can help you in wyoming agriculture all right uh there i'm sure you could build an agricultural business on foraging but that's not entirely what i'm getting into today driving down the road here all right you'll see a lot of sunflowers all right so if you're seeing sunflowers uh particularly a lot in a certain area then that kind of tells you that there's a couple of crops that might do well in your area you might be able to do okay with sunflowers it'd be worth at least trialing at a garden scale to see if it works uh, you might do good with sunchokes again those are helianthus species just like sunflower is but instead of helianthus anis which is the annual sunflower you're looking at helianthus tuberosus which is the sunchoke or jerusalem artichoke as it's often called um, so those are some things that you might try based on seeing sunflowers on the side of the road uh, let's see some other things we see a lot of mullein in Wyoming uh, or mullein however you want to pronounce it cowboy toilet paper now mullein is a good medicinal um, and of course as alluded to cowboy toilet paper it is a good ass wipe if you're in a hard spot um, it's good and soft you know you're going for the the leaves of the the one-year plant at that point not really something you're gonna be picking in the winter but something you can get a hold of in the summer for the most part so mullein uh, you know you got your leaves there for your toilet paper and uh, you can dry them out cure them and uh, they're an expectorant medically speaking now what a I'm not advising you on herbs but what a, what do expectorants do let's look at that all right they help you to expel things from your lungs from my understanding all right so uh, from my little bit of research it sounds like the Native Americans maybe used to smoke mullein to help them uh, clear their lungs you know help keep their lungs clean while they're smoking tobacco and other things and uh, and that's one use of it but you can also use mullein tea and mullein tinctures mullein extracts from those leaves to help your lungs stay healthy and I know there's people that are making these oh there's a phone call okay let's pause this all right and I'm back hopefully you can hear me pretty good uh, a little call from a friend there so that was helpful gave my uh, voice a little chance to rest so I could just shut up and listen for a minute uh, I'm gonna try to figure out and remember about where I was I think I was talking about mullein um, so mullein, you know, it, it, it's good for uh, lung health. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are particularly concerned about lung health right now. So it could even become a financial crop for you if you're interested in growing that itself. One of the things about mullein is it's a pioneer species. It tends to grow in areas that are uh, denuded and degraded and not very nutrient-rich. They're kind of struggling a bit. And then as the soil gets better and the tilth improves, the mullein will kind of disappear. It'll stop growing there and it'll move on. Um, so that's one of the things that will tell you. Even if you're not growing it, it'll tell you the soil conditions. The other thing mullein's really good for is the flowers. Uh, you can make a mullein flower tincture that is really good for earaches and helping to take care of earaches. And, uh, and those pop up. Uh, they end up with some pretty big stalks. They're a biennial, as we talked about earlier. Um, so the stalks and flowers will show up in the second year. And the leaves are typically just gonna be like a, a basil rosette or whatever they call that, that growth pattern in the first year. So if you're going for the leaves, you'll be harvesting first year. And if you want the flowers, you'll be harvesting in the second year. Uh, so that's one of the things that you see on the roadsides a lot when you're driving down the road in Wyoming and we talked about mullein we talked about sunflower some of the other ones um, yucca you'll see a lot of yucca growing in Wyoming along the roadsides it's another edible that you can forage uh, in Wyoming you know it, it's not always the best uh, thing that I would try to 
crop out necessarily, but it might tell you that maybe there's some forms of yucca uh, that you could plant for ornamentals or that you could plant for uh, a little more productive growth. Uh, they might do okay here. You know, it's something worth trialing. The yucca flowers I like to eat uh, while it's flowering, just the flower petals. They're kind of like a, a light cucumbery flavor. Um, so that's yucca. We talked about mullein, yucca, sunflower, some of the other things. You'll see uh, wild roses growing around uh, along the roadsides a lot. I'll tell you, roses do good here. Um, sometimes, you know, your most fussy of ornamental roses might not do super good, but it's worth trying. But if you're growing like woods rose or something specifically for the rose hips, for rose hip tea, then that might be a crop that you find does well if you're finding a lot of wild roses in your area. Choke cherries, if you're seeing choke cherries around, you'll know that those will do good. You can just plant choke cherries themselves. Uh, it's a hardwood that's native to Wyoming. So if you're growing for wood, you know, you could uh, get a coppice yard going off of that. Maybe just the fruit for some wine making or some uh, jams and jellies, things of that nature. Uh, grasses, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of grass in Wyoming. Not always the best grass, but sometimes there's some decent varieties. So that'll tell you maybe you can uh, possibly get miscanthus grass to grow. I haven't tried miscanthus yet. My uh, suspicion is that even though it'll grow to about 11 feet tall in other places, you'd be lucky to get six here. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but maybe you can use miscanthus or other tall growing bunch grasses as a means of developing a bit of a windbreak for a garden space or livestock area or out in your pastures. Willow, you'll see a lot of willow clumps growing uh, along the road. That'll tell you that willows will do here and poplars will do okay here. Uh, what's the use of that? Well, it's particularly useful if you are raising livestock. Willow will make a really good uh, crop for tree fodder if you're harvesting for the leaves to make tree hay or if you want to even just harvest in the summer alone give them a branch a day or something or a few branches every day and uh, use those trees to your advantage to help give them something green and mineral rich in the summer especially during the drought period when the grass is brown and dry and there's not really much green stuff going on that tree fodder can really help to uh, back you up during those tougher times Let's think about some other things. Uh, driving along here this morning, I was looking at something I couldn't tell. This, I mean, I'm not an expert on plants ID, but I, I couldn't tell if it was asparagus, uh, wild dill, or if it was, you know, something in the in the carrot family, which wild dill would be, but, you know, like a Queen Anne's lace, which is actually wild carrot or some kind of poisonous plant that's closely related to that. Um, but anyway, that could give you an idea. You know, if you've got asparagus growing on the roadsides near you, then that'll tell you that, hey, maybe I can grow some asparagus in my garden. It'll do well. If you're seeing wild dill or carrots or things like that, they'll tell you, hey, maybe one of those things would do well. And you can plant varieties that are a little more productive and that you enjoy more uh, based on the survivability of the wild cousins in your area. If you're seeing pine trees growing around, well, maybe uh, maybe ponderosa pine would do pretty well. That tends to do pretty well in Wyoming. I have heard that there's some pinyon pines in Cheyenne. Maybe in certain areas you could get pinyons to survive. I'm kind of a little uh, suspicious of that. I don't really think that pinyon is something that would grow super well in Wyoming. Uh, I think it's a little too far north for it. But you can give it a go. Uh, the, the ponderosa pine though does yield a, a decent sized pine nut. I don't really know how harvesting goes. I know with uh, pinion it's pretty simple because you shake it um, down onto a tarp. But maybe there's something to be developed there, you know, a ponderosa pine nut market. Are you uh, finding wild apples growing near the side of the road? For instance, uh, the poison spider apple growing out off of poison spider there in Casper. Uh, that's growing there. So that would tell you maybe apples will do pretty well here. In fact, if you look historically, there's quite a history of apples in Wyoming. There is a, a guy named Steve Miller 
with the University of Wyoming that's working on the Wyoming Apple Project. And I'm actually trying to get him on the podcast. I sent him an email. I haven't heard back. Uh, maybe if one of you guys knows him, put a little pressure on. Just saying. Uh, but I'd love to talk to him. You know, there's there's a lot of history uh, with apples in the state of Wyoming. So that'll tell you apples will probably do pretty well. What kind of apples? I don't know. You know, it might be some varieties over another, I'm sure. So maybe there's some old old varieties uh, that used to be grown in Wyoming that do well here. Uh, maybe you plant some seeds and come on to some new ones. But apples are probably something that would do pretty well. Even crab apples if you're just looking for the wood or the shelter out of them. Uh, if apples are doing well, there's a possibility, and again, this is a possibility, that maybe some pears or something would do well because they're related. I've found that uh, plums tend to grow pretty well. I, there's a guy out on Cold Creek growing a lot of plums. I've transplanted some and uh, gotten them to survive pretty decently out uh, in antelope hills. So plum trees will probably do okay. That's getting it. We're getting into a lot of perennials now, but you'll find uh, some of these some of these things you can see when you're driving down the road. You know the apples and, and things like that. Uh, You'll occasionally see burr oaks, so that'll tell you maybe some oak trees uh, might do okay. Maybe you can find a really productive kind of oak that'll grow a lot of acorns. Maybe it'll survive if you're looking to develop a bit of an oak uh, savanna for pasturing uh, pigs and cattle and such on. Just something to think about. Sometimes you'll see, uh, I don't know if they're muscadines or if they're, if they're wild grapes themselves, but you know, a grape might do well in Wyoming in certain areas if you can get it to grow, if you can get it to start. I've seen people growing grapes in town. Uh, a certain nursery in town is growing them. So maybe grapes are a good pick. And these are just things you can get. You can pick up on these uh, just from driving down the road. You'll see a lot of curly dock in Wyoming, another edible, um, really fibrous so it's not something to eat a ton of you know but mix it in with your wheat when you grind your flour or whatever it goes pretty good in the bread that's an idea there but what does that tell you well maybe uh it is it is related to spinach so spinach probably do pretty well here and in my experience that is kind of shown to be the case if you plant it in the right time of year spinach can be quite productive all right what else might grow here if curly dock is doing good well maybe you can get away with growing like amaranth or something. It's got a similar growth pattern uh, as far as the way it puts out seeds. So maybe amaranth would do okay, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of lamb's quarters around. So if that's growing well, maybe you can grow quinoa. That's pretty uh, closely related. So if lamb's quarters growing good, maybe quinoa would be a good crop to grow. Try that out, see how that works. Grasses, uh, of course, can also tell you that maybe it's a good environment for growing wheat, barley, oats. Uh, there's a lot of people that do oats around the state. Uh, there's a lot of people that grow barley around the state. There's a lot of Coors, uh, Coors Company, uh, their barley, a lot of it is sourced from Wyoming for their beer. So that tells you barley is probably a decent crop to grow in Wyoming. I've seen a lot of grass there. A lot of people try to go corn. Some people do pretty good with it. It kicks my ass every time I try it. I'm, I'm not really good at growing corn, but maybe it'll work good for you. Depends on how your soil is, how you care for it. Um, when you get it in, you gotta get it in early to let it grow, you know? They say knee high by July or by the 4th of July. You know, if you can get it about that high, maybe it'll do okay. Some other things you might pick up on, you know? Uh, so these are just, just general pattern recognition that I'm trying to point out, trying to get you to recognize when you're driving down the road and you see these plants. I mean, they might just look like weeds to you, but they can teach you a thing or two. They can teach you how the soil looks, how the soil is behaving. Is the soil rich? Is it poor? Is the soil aerated? Is it compacted? Uh, what's going on there, you know? Uh, you'll see a lot of the times, you know, mustards, there's a lot of wild mustards that grow in Wyoming and you don't necessarily see the whole plant from the road because they're so small, but in the early, early spring, you'll see areas where there's like a light purple hue to the field. That's typically mustards growing. That's a lot of wild mustards uh, that are growing and they have little purple flowers. So if you're seeing that, you know, you might be able to grow some mustards or some turnips. 
things like that might grow pretty well for you. I'm seeing a lot of dandelions, they'll tell you your soil's pretty compacted, um, but you might be able to grow parsnips or something of the sort because it's a, it's a similar root structure. Uh, you know, carrots, parsnips, things like that. So these are just things to look out for, you know, they'll, they'll tell you a thing or two uh, based on what you're seeing in the landscape as you're driving around the road, you know, are you seeing, you know, a lot of signs of erosion? Maybe that's a sign that on your property, if you, uh, if you want things to be more productive, whether that's for grazing or for gardening or anything in between, that you need to do something to address that erosion, whether it's wind erosion, uh, water erosion, etc. So, just some things to think about, you know, while you're driving around, whether it's on a road trip or just going to town. Take a look around. Be observational. Be uh, be situationally aware, and just that little bit of awareness can, you know, pay out in spades and how you design your property going forward and it can make a huge difference between a property like that one I had in Cheyenne where I didn't really know what I was doing and then you can tell that with the design now and a property that is well thought out and well designed and is very productive for years to come so just think about that all right so that's kind of about all the rambling I wanted to do guys uh, I didn't really do a sponsorship section for today so I suppose we'll get that out of the way now. If you'd like to support the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast, you can do so in a quick and painless way. It won't cost you anything else. I know you're doing that shopping anyway, so before you go to Amazon, just go to our website, click our link to Amazon, and any qualifying purchases that you make while you're there are going to help support the show. All right, so you're going to go to... The, the URL is a little complicated for now. We'll eventually get that changed. But you're going to go to cackleberryfg.wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E, dot com forward slash Y-O-A-G, W-I-O-A-G. And on that website, of course, you can listen to the show. You can donate. You can see our Zazzle and Redbubble stores. And you can follow that Amazon link. Go to Amazon. Buy whatever you're going to buy anyway. I know you're shopping there. And you'll help support the show at a no-cost-to-you, very simple way. All right? So that's it. That's my little sponsorship for the day. Done selling to you. I hope that this rambling was somewhat helpful for you. Gave you some thinking to do. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time, go on and grow on.